welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Robert Fonseca. Before we get into this morning's uh, message in Mark, we'll be in Mark chapter 6. We're going to finish up chapter 6 this morning. Let's, let's pray again and ask God to, to speak to us this morning. Oh, Lord God, thank you so much for this morning, especially in worship, just being reminded of who you are and how worthy you are of praise and how, Lord God, you see all that is going on around us. You are not blind and you are not deaf and you are not sleeping, but you are in full control. And may we learn as a people to trust you, God, in the midst of that. And so this morning, as we turn to your word, I pray that you would speak through it, that you would speak to every heart this morning. Speak to them where they're at, Lord, for you know what they need. You know where they are spiritually. If there's any hard hearts this morning, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would soften them and that they might hear your voice. And for those who have been walking with you for a long time, Lord God, I pray that you would speak to them, that their hearts would not be hardened to the familiarity of your word and of these uh, uh, episodes in scripture that talk about how awesome you are. May we hear it afresh this morning and may you speak to us loud and clear. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, this morning, uh, the title of this morning's message is God is watching over you. We'll be in Mark chapter six, looking at verses 45 through 46 or 56. Sorry, not just two verses. 45 through 56. And Mark, uh, the author of the gospel, has continued to demonstrate as we go through this, demonstrate to his reader, you and I, uh, who Jesus is. This is the, the thing that Mark is continuing to do in his gospel. He's continuing to unfold the identity and mission of Jesus to us bit by bit. Uh, Jesus, as he is showing us, is more than just a great teacher. He's more than just a great healer. He's even more than just a great leader. He is God incarnate. And this is what he is trying to show over and over again. In today's text, Mark retells of Jesus' miraculous walk on water. And he does this for a couple of reasons. Primarily to demonstrate that Jesus is God, as I said. And secondarily, he's trying to teach a lesson to the disciples and to us as the observers and the readers of the text this morning, that since Jesus is God, the disciples can trust Jesus no matter where they are, no matter what they're going through. And these realities were not only true for Jesus's disciples then, but they're also true for Jesus's disciples today who I am privileged to say I'm part of, and I hope that you can say that as well. Uh, so my prayer this morning is that we grasp this reality, this reality that these truths are true for us and that we understand them in such a way that they will affect us in the way that we live and the way that we move beyond this morning. So with that said, let's go ahead and read the text 
I'm going to read just verses 45 through 52 to start, and then we'll come back and point out a few things this morning. So Mark writes, And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the multitudes away. And after bidding them farewell, he departed to the mountains to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it, it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were frightened. But immediately he spoke with them and said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. So let's stop right there and go back to the very beginning. Just for context, so what has happened, as Pastor Jared taught us last week, Jesus had just fed the 5,000 people. And the crowds that were there, this is immediately after that, the crowds were ready to take Jesus by force and make him king. And we know this, it doesn't tell us here, but by the parallel account in John chapter 5, excuse me, John chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. And let me read that to you. So this is a parallel account of what, we're reading, what we've already read. It says this, So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So Jesus, knowing what was going on, knowing the commotion of the crowd and what they were intending to do, he needed to diffuse the situation. And this is where Mark picks up here. So Jesus, what does he do? He knows they're going to make, they're going to try to make him king. And he did not want his disciples to get caught up or swept up in this hysteria. And he did not want the crowds to affect what he was trying to do with his disciples. So we see Jesus immediately, it says in verse 45, he sends the disciples away. He gets them on a boat, tells them to go out. And then he turns and he sends the crowds away. And then he himself goes up to the mountain to pray. Here we see Jesus, what we see in his sending them out, is he's protecting his disciples from the negative influences that are around them, right? Those influences that, are, that we're considering negative this morning are those influences that are contraries, contrary excuse me, to God's divine plan. You know, we've read over and over again in the gospel this, this, as we've gone through it, where Jesus does something Great, right? He does a great miracle. He says, don't say anything to anybody. Don't tell anybody. And we, we've talked about this a number of times, but Jesus is revealing himself in his way, in his time, and he doesn't want there to be any misunderstanding. Again, these crowds, they're coming to make him king. He's doing all these great things. He's powerful, and that's what they want to do. And again, Jesus is saying, no, not yet. It's not my time. I'm going to reveal it in my timing, in my plan, and I don't need my disciples to get mixed up and influenced by this hysteria. Even the well-meaning influences of the crowds, right, to make him king, these are contrary 
to God's plans. And if it's contrary to God's plans, then you can consider it to be an evil thing. Right? Even though it looks good on the outside, it's evil. There's a satanic element behind it. Remember the Apostle Peter, and we'll study this in a few weeks. He goes through this experience where Jesus, and, and I'll pick up in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus is telling the disciples about, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be turned over, and I'm going to be crucified. And what does Peter say? He says, no, Lord. He takes the Lord aside and rebukes Jesus, it tells us in Matthew 16. Right? Peter took him aside and rebuked him and said, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And what does Jesus tell him? Verse 23 in, in Matthew 16, he says, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. I mean, none of the disciples wanted Jesus to die, right? I mean, this is, they've given up their lives to follow him. He's doing all these great things in their land. Everybody's excited. And even this good thing of not wanting Jesus to die, Jesus says, this is satanic because you're not following my plan. You're talking about your own interests and not mine. So Jesus here, going back to our text now, basically seeing anything that would stop him from completing his mission is ultimately satanic. The uh, 18th century pastor, his name is Edward, Edward Griffin, in his sermon, uh, it's called The Abominable Nature of Sin. He says this, sin is directly opposed to all the wishes and designs of God. So anything that is opposed to the wishes and designs of God is sin. Think of that every time we sin against God, that is opposition to what God's design is, what God's wishes are. So even something well-intentioned, again, as wanting to make him king, is against his wishes. It's against his design. So again, anything that would derail Jesus from going to the cross was satanic. Thus, the crowd trying to make him king was satanic. And Jesus didn't want, again, his disciples to be influenced by this sentiment, so he sends them on the boat to go out to sea. But not only do we see Jesus protecting his disciples from that, right? He's protecting them from those negative influences by sending them away, but he also shows them that they need to grow in their reliance upon him. So it's a dual message that he's sending them. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to send you out on your own. But also while you're on your own, you're going to need that you still need me. So in verse 47, it says, when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea. The uh, gospel of John tells us three or four miles out at sea at this time. So he sees the boat in the midst of the sea and he was alone on the land. So you get the picture. Jesus on the land. The boat's way out there. And then verse 48 says, And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against him at about the fourth watch of the night, so somewhere between three and six in the morning. It's still dark. They're struggling because it's windy out on the ocean or in the sea, sorry. 
It says that he coming to them, walking on the water, he intended to pass by them. So again, Jesus sees his disciples struggling at sea, and this was a normal thing. There's nothing incredible about struggling at sea with such a strong wind. But then something incredible does happen. Jesus walks out towards them, and from the disciples' perspective, it looks like he's just going to pass right by them. How could this be? How could a man walk on water? Well, you would be right to say, well, he can't, right? Man can't walk on water. But again, Mark is trying to show us this is not an ordinary man like you and I. This is God incarnate. Again, this is the lesson, the overall arching lesson that he is trying to teach them. It's interesting as you read commentaries or even hear uh, skeptics or, or liberal Christians, would, well, you know, they're trying to explain away this miracle. Maybe it's misunderstood. Some of them are a little hilarious, uh, similar to what Jared shared last week about how they tried to explain away the feeding of the 5,000. Well, hey, one person broke some bread, and everybody goes, oh, we should share too, and everybody started sharing. Well, some people would say, well, Jesus wasn't actually walking on the top of water in the sense of like nothing was below him, but there was a hidden sandbar or a hidden reef. So it looked like he was walking on water. He was actually walking on solid ground. But again, John's account, it said he was three or four miles out at sea. And then remember in Matthew's parallel account, Peter asked to come out and walk towards Jesus and, Jesus, and Peter falls in. Well, if it was a sandbar or a reef, Peter would not have fallen. Some would say, well, Jesus was actually walking along the shore. Where he was at land, he was like walking along the shore, and they saw him, and they said, oh, look, he's walking on water. But again, it's 3, or three to 6 o'clock in the morning, real dark still. How can they see three or four miles to shore? All these attempts are made to rule out the divinity of Jesus. And some do it in a nice way. They're like, well, we don't want Christians to look like Foolish in believing that a man could walk on water. But that's the main point. Again, Mark is trying to show you this is not an ordinary man. This is God incarnate. And if God exists, or since God exists, all things are possible. If God created this world out of absolutely nothing, then walking on water is not a problem. And so this miracle is demonstrating to the disciples and to us as readers that Jesus is no ordinary man. In the Old Testament, God is depicted over and over again as master over the sea, for he walks on it or through it. In the book of Job, chapter 9, verse 8, it says this, speaking of God, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down on the waves of the sea? Another verse, Psalm 77, 19 says this, and speaking of God, thy way is in the sea and thy pass in the water and thy footprints may not be known or may not be seen because he's picturing God walking on top of the waves or the water so you can't see any footsteps. There are more verses, but Again, the Old Testament in describing God as somebody who's mastering over the sea, who can walk on the sea. And here Jesus is walking on the sea. Again, Mark is trying to demonstrate to the reader, this is God incarnate. 
So the disciples, how do they react to this? Verse 49 tells us, look at verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and they cried out. This would seem normal, right? Because again, the disciples are like, what is this? This is kind of freaky to see somebody walking on the sea. It must be a ghost. So they cry out in fear because of that. They think it's a ghost. They didn't recognize that it was Jesus in their midst. Right? The last thing that they would have thought of was Jesus walking on water. Because they didn't yet fully, as we'll see in a moment, fully didn't understand who Jesus is. Over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus is always saying, Oh, ye of little faith. Did you guys should know this by now? And it wasn't until the resurrection where the lights went on in the disciples' eyes that, whoa, this is, this is God, right? This is somebody that, something that we've never seen before. And so after they see this, they think it's a ghost. What does Jesus tell them? Verse 50, right? He says, for they all saw him and were frightened, but immediately he spoke He spoke with him and said, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus tells him, take courage. It's interesting to note that phrase, take courage, means to be of good cheer. He's like, hey, be of good cheer. They're like, no, this is a ghost. This is kind of scary. I thought of that song. Some of you may remember. I think it was late 80s, early 90s. Don't worry. Be happy. Does anybody besides old me being really old remember that? Thank you in the back. That's going to be in your head for now on, right? Don't worry. Maybe Izzy will sing it for us. I don't know. <laughs> be happy. I could see him doing it. If you come to like the, the when they're practicing, you'll hear stuff like that. <laughs> don't worry. He's saying, don't worry. Be of, be of good cheer. Take courage. That's what he's saying. It's like, why, 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 why would they be of good cheer? What does he say? It is I. It is I. It's me, he's saying. It's Jesus, your Lord, the one who calms the storm. There's no need to be afraid, which is exactly what he says after that. Don't be afraid. He says, take courage. It is I, meaning it's God. God's here with you. The one that heals the sick, calms the storm, casts out demons, resurrects the dead, walks on water, I'm here, there's nothing to fear. Don't be afraid any longer. He says, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Verse 51 shows us their reaction, and 52, it says, and he got into the boat after saying this, and the wind stopped, And they were greatly astonished. They were, as anybody rightly would be, they're amazed, right? They thought it was a ghost, but now this ghost gets in the boat, says it's Jesus, and they realize that it is Jesus. In Matthew's parallel account, Peter is already asked to walk on the water. Hey, if this is you, Lord, let me walk to you. And he starts walking, and then he sees what he's doing, and he falls. Jesus picks him up, and they both get into the, the boat. And they're amazed. 
maybe still a little unbelieving. Wow, this is crazy that this just happened, that we just saw this. They didn't fully understand it yet, as we'll see in a few moments, or as I'll just tell you now. Because if you look at verse 52, it says, They're astonished, for they have not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Jesus, they had just seen this great miracle, 5,000 people fed with a few loaves, 12 baskets filled up afterwards of leftovers, and they still don't really understand what's going on. They see Jesus walking on water. They're amazed, but they still don't understand everything. Despite seeing the last miracle, it's very interesting in verse 52, it says again, their heart was hardened still. Their hearts were hardened. What does that mean? Hardened heart, that word is talking about a callous, right? Something that grows over when your skin gets rough, callous heart. So the picture is that their heart is hardened. There's a callous over their heart in some sense, even though they're disciples, even though they were followers of Jesus, they still have this hardness of their, in their heart to believe who exactly he is. The definition of harden, again, means to cover with a thick skin like a callus, to dull the sensitivity, right? So they're not so sensitive. Or it can mean to grow dull, meaning to lose power to understand. And, and I think that's what's being said of the disciples. They, they don't have the full power or capability to understand who this really is in their presence. But this miracle and all these miracles that they're seeing is going to tear away at that callus little by little by little so they can come to fully understand who Jesus is. In Matthew's parallel account, it says at the end of this, after Jesus got in the boat with Peter, they say, you are certainly God's son. So some of that callous is coming off. They don't fully understand everything, but they're beginning to see a little bit about who this is. You see, they needed to be sent out to see so that they might see who Jesus really is. They needed to be sent out on their own so they can trust in Jesus, learn about him a little more, learn to trust him for their own salvation and for their daily provisions. Right? Jesus can't constantly be there with them, giving them every little thing that they need. Sometimes they need to grow. They need to go out on their own and they need to learn. They need to trust Jesus. You see, people today are still calloused in the things of God. And some of us can be at times as well. This is just not a non-believers issue. Because again, the disciples are believers. So just think some people become desensitized to the truth and the reality of who Jesus is. We've heard about Jesus for a long time, but, you know, we don't really truly believe that he can do these things. Maybe even this morning as you hear Jesus walking on water, you're like, yeah, I remember listening to that in Sunday school, and that was good to believe when I was a kid. But I'm rational now. I think logically that's impossible for a human to do, in which we said, yes, it is, but he's not human. And some people just stop believing that they did when they first believed. 
right? Maybe some of you can remember when you first became a believer and you were excited for the Lord, telling everybody what the Lord did for you and how the Lord's answering prayer. You're seeing all these great things happen in your life. Almost everything you see is like you see God's hand in it. But then after you grow much older in the faith, you begin to get a little more desensitized or callous. That can happen as well. And you're not as excited to tell people about the Lord. You're not as excited to read your Bible and to pray and to come to church every week. It's become, you know, well, it's okay. We don't really need to go to church every week. We don't really need to pray to God over every time I eat. Or we don't need to thank God for every little thing. Right? And that's why sometimes I think God allows us, okay, go out on your own and you'll see you're going to need to trust me a little more. You're going to need to cry out to me. Sometimes people need to see how awesome God is and how much they truly need him. And some people have just grown hard against the Lord, period. And they don't have the ability to understand anything spiritual. You know, you may know some people like that. They're just hard against the Lord. And nothing you say, nothing you do, nothing they see or hear ever makes them move one way or another. They have a, a really hardened heart. Maybe there's some of you in here like this this morning or some of you who are listening online that are like that. Your heart has become hardened in one of these ways. And I pray that God will tear that callus off your heart slowly. I wish, I wish he would just rip it off and make, us, you know, make you believe. But, you know, God sometimes doesn't do that. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. We don't know what God is doing. But we need to trust that he's doing that. You know, maybe some people have grown up in the church. As I mentioned, they've heard it all. They're like, stop, stop believing for whatever reason. I don't know. So this is the account, what we see in verse 52. And then we have this story at the end, verses 53 through 56. And what we have here is just a contrast of the hardness of hearts of the, of the disciples to everybody else. Watch. Look what it says. And when they had crossed over and came to the, to the land of the Gesenaret and moored to the shore, so the boat with Jesus has made it across the sea. Look at what happens. And when they had come out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. And they ran about the whole country, began to carry about on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. And wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and entreating him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. This story is interesting because, and I like the word that the translators use in verse 54, the people recognized him. A contrast to the disciples who didn't, right? We're told they didn't recognize him. They thought he was a ghost. Therefore, they cried out in fear. These people recognized that's Jesus. And we're going to tell everybody and we're going to grab those who are sick and we're going to carry them to Jesus because we believe what he can do. Again, it doesn't mean that they were believers and that the disciples weren't believers. It's just this recognition of who Jesus was. They recognized him as this great healer. They understood that, that he can heal. 
and their actions match their understanding because if Jesus can heal, well, then I'm going to bring my friend who's sick to the Lord. Again, it just, it's, a, it's a neat contrast in the story where the disciples don't recognize him and they respond in kind out of fear. And these people recognize him and respond by bringing people to him so that they can be healed. Interesting. So let's wrap this up with some points of application. Let me start with this and ask this question to each and every one of you this morning, believer or non-believer, and you ask yourself this question yourself, how is your heart towards God this morning? Has a callus formed, been forming over your heart to the things of God? Are you sensitive to the things of God or have you grown hardened heart and cold As I said earlier, I pray that God would begin to remove that from you before it is too late. Before you be totally turn your back on God because it is so hardened. You know, just because you're in church doesn't mean you have a tender heart. A lot of us come to church for, you know, different reasons. When I first became, when I first came to church, it wasn't because I wanted to hear to God. It was because I was dating this girl and her, and it wasn't my current wife, so... This is nothing against her, but uh, it was because my girlfriend went there, so I went there. I wasn't looking for God. You know, I was just trying to stay in their good graces. And thankfully, God got a hold of me in the process. So I say that always, I don't know why you're here this morning. Maybe your spouse brought you. Maybe your mom and dad brought you. Maybe you brought your mom and dad. Maybe you brought a friend. I, I don't know. But God is speaking to you now, speaking to your heart. If you hear him, I pray that you would respond to him and not let that callous form over your heart. So that's number one. Another message for us this morning, especially for believers, as we look at what Jesus was doing with his disciples, right? He did two things I mentioned. He sent them, he sent his disciples in the boat for two reasons. And we're going to take that as our points of application this morning. Remember, he sent them away because he didn't want them to be influenced by the ungodly desires of the crowd to make Jesus king. God watches out for his people. As I mentioned in the beginning, he watched out for his disciples then, and he's watching out for you this morning as well. So sometimes what God does is he sends us away from ungodly influences. Think about this, mor- that, this morning in your life. What ungodly influences are around you today? God would want to send you away from those godly influences because they affect us, whether you believe it or not. It can be a person. It can be uh, media, music, activities. I mean, whatever it is, whatever is obstructing you from growing in your relationship with Christ. Anything that is contrary to the will of God is an ungodly influence, and the Lord would want us to stay away from such things. Let me give you a few verses. And this one in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 through 12, God is telling his church through the apostle Paul about their old life and their new life. And he's saying, don't participate with those people who still practice such things. He says this, 
Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of, uh, the, fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and in truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of these things which are done by them in secret. This is a great warning to the church. He's like, hey, you guys used to live this way. Don't participate with people that are doing those things anymore. That's not your life. You're supposed to be seeking what's pleasing to the Lord. So just ask yourself, the people that I surround myself with, that I hang out with, that I go out with, are they helping you grow in your relationship with God or are they being a negative influence on you? Now, I'm not saying you can't hang out with people outside the church because we're supposed to be out there influencing the world for goodness, for the gospel. But look at your closest friends. Do they encourage you to grow in the Lord? Are they here with you in church today or in their own church? Or are they participating, as the Apostle Paul writes, into the unfruitful deeds of darkness Just something to ask ourselves. What are those things that are influencing me today? Maybe the Lord is trying to send you away from those things. I mean, look at church as a godly reprieve. I'm, I'm spending it around God's people being refreshed. Maybe this is the little boat that the Lord is sending you out on. God also wants to keep us away from ungodly influence in all aspects of our lives. According to 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, he says this, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. This is even talking about people within the church, right? He's talking about every brother. Sometimes people within the church are bad influences on us. Why? Look at what he says. Because they lead, they lead an unruly life. They might come to church, but outside of church, they don't live like they really know who Jesus is. And he says they, don't, they live an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you received from us. The disciples are saying, which we taught you how to live. Those brothers are living contrary to that. So he says... Keep away from that person. Sometimes we even need to disassociate ourselves from Christians because they don't have a godly influence on us. God's watching out for us by sending us away from ungodly influences. Sometimes he just takes them out away from us altogether if we can't do it on our own. I know we pray that as parents. God, please Remove all the ungodly influences from our children from the time that they've been raised up. They're in the world, and we know that, and, you know, but we don't want them to be influenced by ungodliness. Psalm 119, 115 
This is a plea by the psalmist. He says, depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. He's recognizing the people around me. They're not helping me observe the commandments of God. And I need them away from me. Sometimes we must decide for ourselves, you know, I need to disconnect from this person or that activity, whatever it is that has an influence on your life. If you've been in our church for some time, you've probably heard me tell this over and over again. When I first became a believer, it felt like God moved me away from my family and my friends, and I moved into another home out here in Riverside. I, lived in, I grew up in Lakewood, but those were, those were all my old friends, and my, they were influences that weren't going to help me grow in Christ. And so I moved out here to Riverside and started going to another church, and I started to learn about the Lord. And it was a lonely time in my life because I didn't have friends. I had a bunch of friends back in Lakewood, but that was my old life. And I didn't want to live like that anymore. I tried to hang out with them still, but it was like I was sitting there and they were partying, you know, drinking, smoking, the things that I used to do. But I was like, this isn't fun for me. And I need to disconnect myself. And so sometimes that happens to us. We need to get away from those influences, you know. And so that's thankfully what happened to me. That is a little bit of my story. So we, sometimes we need to say, depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. So sometimes God sends you away from evildoers or to protect you, he sends you away. And sometimes he sends you out on your own just like he did with the disciples so that you learn to trust him more. That you need to realize that you need me, meaning God, to survive. Right? So sometimes God sends us into trials to build our faith because that's what drives us to truly trust him. Right? Sometimes when we have this, everything's going great, we tend to maybe forget about God. It's not until the next tragedy comes that we are remembering, oh man, I need the Lord. Consider what James says in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, speaking of trials, he says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing. When the Lord sent the disciples into the boat and they were struggling out there, he was going to walk right by him, it says, and they had to like call out to him after they first were cried out in fear, but he wanted them to trust him. He said, you guys haven't learned anything yet. You need to trust and believe that I can do all things. Sometimes we're sent into trials or we suffer trials so that we can learn from those trials, right? If we were given everything and handed everything, we'd be like a spoiled child who always gets what they want and they never grow up and never learn. Sometimes we need to go through things. We need to suffer a little bit. We need to endure hardship so that we could learn to trust God so much so that again, he says, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We need to learn how to trust God when we go through hard times. 
I know we want God to deliver us right away because we don't like what we're going through, but sometimes we need to stay there for a little while. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7 says this about trials. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, another verse, another apostle teaching the church about suffering. Why do we go through suffering? Why are we greatly distressed? Sometimes to strengthen our faith. I think of people that work out, right? Obviously not me, because I'm thinking about other people. Uh, <laughs> because I don't like the pain, but they go through pain, right? No pain, no gain. Same thing in scripture, in the Christian life. No pain in your faith, you won't gain anything in your faith. Sometimes we need to go through suffering. We need to go through trials. We need to be tested. You know, God is not that quote-unquote helicopter parent that's always protecting you. He's got us in a perfect little bubble. Nothing ever bad is going to happen. Unfortunately, some pastors might teach that, right? Everything's going to go great. Name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. You're going to get everything you want. Life's going to be perfect. I look at the apostles. Each and every one of them, according to church tradition, died of persecution. Jesus himself was crucified on a cross. Sometimes life is tough, but we have the Lord who's there with us. He's just outside that boat, walking on the water, watching us from land. He pushed us out there. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, another verse on being pushed out into the ocean of suffering. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory Far beyond all comparison. Believe me, when we stand before God and we get to heaven and we look back and see the things that we went through, we're going to know like we've never known before. And guess what? They're going to pale in comparison to what we have. Right? That little momentary light affliction, as big as it seems to us right now because it's real and it's happening to us in the grand scheme of things, it's going to look like light affliction, producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Right? It's like we don't even understand what's in store for us. It's like taking a child to like Disneyland for the first time. They don't even understand what's there. The greatness of Disneyland, so to speak, if you're a fan of Disneyland. Not the lines, but everything else. Right? The little kid's dying in the car. Are we there yet? Oh, I'm hungry. The momentary light affliction. But just wait, you're going to the happiest place on earth. The Lord would tell us, just wait, you're going to the happiest place in the universe. Let's pray. Let's pray that we can recognize... That, hey, whatever's going on in our life, God's got us there for a reason. And remember that God's right there with us. Let's pray.
Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for revealing to us that you are not just a man, that you are God incarnate who became a man to live among us, to take upon our sins and to deliver us from them and to reconcile us to yourself. We thank you for that, Lord God. May we understand that in such a way that it would cause us to live different than everyone else in the ways that we lived before. Lord God, even though we don't understand all things, may we trust you that you understand all things and that you're doing all things for your glory and for our benefit. May we trust you as we go through the perils and the trials of this life, as we are struggling out on the sea of life, sometimes crying out in fear, sometimes crying out in frustration, may we remember to take courage, for it is you, and we don't need to be afraid. Help us, Lord God, to do that, and help us to remember who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.